Nearly 5 million tourists every year visit Charleston, South Carolina. They go home with carry-on bags filled with Charleston gold rice and shrimp seasoning. But few of them know they probably spent their time in South Carolina, under the same roof as a family cooking a renowned cuisine from an entirely different continent. Yesterday she did string beans with, you know, Indian spices and that, with chapati and uh, some yogurt curry. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a story we've done in collaboration with The Post and Courier in Charleston and its food editor, Hannah Raskin. It's a story about negotiating the public and private dimensions of dinner in places that dot the South and the whole U.S., places many of us are familiar with, but know very little about what's going on behind the scenes. Those places? Motels. Here's Hannah. If you want a room at the Days Inn in North Charleston, you have to bring your ID and credit card to the front desk. But one of the two tinted glass doors leading into the lobby is broken. Oh, give me your name, please. That's Jaquel Gathers, who works at the desk. Every shift, she watches people impatiently tug on the wrong door. They're in a hurry. They want to get their key cards reset or drop off a package or see about catching a cab downtown. What they don't want to do is linger in the lobby because mid-range hotel lobbies are boring. The Days Inn lobby is tidy and clean, but the only diversions are a TV tuned to a random movie channel, a brochure rack with coupons for the nearby outlet mall, and a water cooler. Days Inn Airport, I may help you. For hotel guests, the lobby is the business end of a vacation or a love affair. For many hotel owners, though, the lobby is where their homes begin. And that's not just true of independent places with names like Southern Lodge or Seaside Inn. That's how it works at franchise hotels, too. Guests may not realize that the door behind or near a check-in desk doesn't lead to a closet or an office. It leads to an apartment. My name is Vimal Patel, and uh, I am at Days Inn on West Montague in North Charleston, South Carolina. I've been here in North Charleston with this Days Inn for 15 years now. And he lives on the premises. We have an apartment we have broke in between rooms, uh, six rooms. Three bedrooms, one living room, one dining, one kitchen. And that's how we have been living in the hotel. Vimal was born in Nairobi, but grew up in India, where his father was a dairy farmer. For a few years, he tried farming too. Then in 2001, he immigrated to the U.S. So I had that wish that one day I would like to have my own hotel. After 9-11, it was a recession, and this place was for sale for quite a while, and we ended up getting it. And after that, I'm here. On its face, hotel ownership is kind of a surprising ambition. How does a man living in a country that has fewer hotels in Florida go from milking water buffalo to renting out rooms in Charleston? As it turns out, Vimal comes from a part of Gujarat state that has a long history of citizens leaving to work in travel industries abroad. In the early 1900s, so many Gujaratis worked as ticket agents and station masters in East Africa that the whole train system was nicknamed the Patel Railway. Now there's a phenomenon known as Patel Motels. They're called that because so many Indian immigrant motel owners share the same last name. You may have noticed that Vimal's last name is Patel. All these Patels are not related. 
Jaquel, the front desk clerk, didn't even know she worked in a so-called Patel Motel until we started talking about it. I've heard of it just on Google, just browsing around. I've heard about it. And I was intrigued, and I just didn't understand what really were Patel Hotels. Because I said, well, the guy that owns this one, his last name is that. And I was like, that has to be a weird coincidence. It's not a coincidence. The best estimate is that more than half of all the motels and hotels in America are owned by immigrants from a tiny part of Gujarat State. And in southeastern cities, such as Charleston, the figure is upward of 60%. One of the many other Mr. Patels running a hotel in the Charleston area is Jay Patel. He's owned the Star of America since 1988. Nobody talks about it. No. Nobody <laughs> talks about it. They say, oh, I, I stayed at a hotel yesterday. His name was Patel, too. I'm staying tomorrow at the hotel. His name Patel. But they never get into the middle of how, how this happened. I think if they did understand it, I think they would start appreciating more, too, of what some of these ethnic groups are making impact to the American economic and the society. Most of the rooms at the Star of America are rented by down-on-their-luck folks who make the motel their long-term home. Increasingly, Patels are running boutique hotels, trading up their motels near highway exits for in-town properties with pools and on-site restaurants. But there are still many Patel-owned motels that contract with city governments to take in veterans and other people who would be homeless without their help. That makes Patel motels an important part of the social safety net. But if you Google the term, like Jaquel did, you probably won't come up with a bunch of social media posts praising the Patels for their hospitality. You'll find complaints about curry. For the entire three days, the room reeked of curry. The smell was so strong that even spraying deodorizer and opening the windows didn't help. Listen to these Yelp reviews from Joy R, Bobby W, Andy O, and Cherry J. Typical Patel Motel. Walked into the lobby overwhelmed by strong smell of curry. As a black person, when I walked into the lobby, they stared at me as if I was interrupting their curry potluck. Strong curry smell around the building and hallway, even my room. I called front desk to complain. I don't understand what the lady said, but something like, why you complain, why people always complain, things like that. Then I just hanged up. WTF! And why are most motels owned by Indians? Cherry J actually asks a good question. Pawan Dingra is one of the best people to answer it. I wrote a book on the Indian American motel owner experience and its implications for immigration in America called Life Behind the Lobby, Indian American Motel Owners in the American Dream. He's also a professor of sociology at Tufts University. Pavan says understanding the current situation requires traveling back in time. So Indians came into the industry back in the 1940s, actually, back in San Francisco. They came into the industry by accident. In fact, those first pioneers are referred to in an affectionate way as accidental moteliers. They were seasonal laborers, um, agricultural laborers in the Bay Area and during the off-season in the city looking for jobs. They would stay at these residential motels as guests because all they could afford. And gradually they realized that, you know, if we pull some money, we might be able to run one of these. So they found an opportunity. But that wasn't the only reason Gujarati immigrants gravitated toward hotels. Unlike immigrants from, say, Punjab or Guangdong province or Puebla, they were strict vegetarians. That ruled out opening restaurants in the U.S., where it was pretty much impossible to run a profitable restaurant without handling meat. As an added bonus, when you open a motel, 
you don't have to waste money on rent because you can live in one of the rooms. Now, the history gets much more complicated after this in the 1970s, but just to say that immigration laws in the U.S. changed that allowed for many, many more Indians and others to come to the U.S. They came as engineers, they came as physicians, and they realized that, you know, I can be an engineer for the city of Detroit or wherever else and make a decent income and have a, you know, relatively straightforward career, or I can, you know, put my energy into something I really rather do, which is be self-sufficient, independent, and run a motel. There are motels all over the country owned by Indian immigrants, but the Southeast is really the hub of them. And that's partly because when early arrivals were looking for affordable hotels, they found them located off small highways in Georgia and the Carolinas, and the owner's presence created a magnet effect. But it's also because of the warm climate, which is kind of reminiscent of the weather in Gujarat. Jay Patel and his wife Kamini have planted a dirt patch near the edge of their motel parking lot. They grow pomegranates, mangoes, guavas, betel, tulasi, cayenne peppers, and curry. I do not eat frozen food. I don't eat canned foods. We still have a garden here, so if you ain't doing nothing in April, I've got a tiller here, so you come back and help us. If you weren't looking for the garden, you probably wouldn't notice it. Pavan says it's common for guests to miss seeing signs of Indian immigrant ownership. Sometimes, that's just how the owners want it. It can be intentional for owners to not hire fellow Indians in the front desk to represent the motel, especially during hours, in the afternoon hours, when there's most check-ins, right? So the first impression that guest gets is not of an Indian-owned establishment, but instead of a, you know, just a generic, cultureless, mainstream establishment. There's a reason for wanting to present that generic front. Owners are well aware that some people are wary of immigrants, and they don't want to lose a customer just because he or she is prejudiced. So you're never going to see anything related to Hinduism, for instance, in the lobbies, even though practically all the owners, Indian owners, are Hindu. Instead, you'll see Christmas trees and kind of, you know, more popular kinds of, of decorations. Uh, but even owners will even change their names. So they will um, create business cards that have very Americanized names uh, as their first name. And so instead of Rajiv Patel, the name will be Rick Patel or Ray Patel. Very, you know, monosyllabic, straightforward names that are easy to pronounce. Pavan calls this process whitening the lobby, even though it sometimes involves black employees like Jaquel. At Jay Patel's hotel, for example, the only wall decorations in the public area reference his leadership in the Lions Club. In his apartment, though, there are statuettes of Hindu gods, Indian textiles, and a pantry packed with Indian spices. Remember those Yelp reviews? The public-private divide in motels is ironclad, except that the smells of Indian cooking are always threatening to breach it. Coming up the various ways Indian motel owners seek to hide and share the food they cook behind the scenes. That's ahead. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. 
Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them Gravy said hey. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There is that donor music. At the restaurant Blue Smoke, Louisiana native Jean-Paul Bourgeois wants to share the food of his home. And to properly share it, it's important that he uses the right southern ingredients, which is not always so easy when you're in the middle of New York City. One of the first things I brought into Blue Smoke was Steen's cane syrup, but they don't distribute past a certain state. And so I buy it directly out of Abbeville, Louisiana. And that's one of those things, like, you're not going to find anywhere else in New York. You'll find it at Blue Smoke. And it's not because I want to be like, hey, I got Steen's cane syrup. I do it because I want it to be familiar. I want it to be something that I'm sharing with others and say, this is my story. This is the story of Steen's cane syrup and how I grew up with it, pouring it over buttery biscuits. For Chef Jean-Paul, using real southern ingredients on the Blue Smoke menu is important to both his kitchen and his customers. You can learn more about the restaurant at bluesmoke.com. And now, back to Hannah Raskin in Charleston, South Carolina. We've talked about how Indian immigrant motel owners will make cultural compromises for the sake of their business, maybe putting Santa Claus instead of Ganesha on the front desk. But they typically draw the line at giving up their cuisine, which is so exceptional that they would rather go to great lengths to conceal it than trade their bajra roti for biscuits. And when an Indian cooks... It sends a beautiful aroma out. You know, even when my wife cooks something, I tell Miss Patel, you can do it a nice cooking. I can smell it. It's nice. Must taste good. Another motel owner, Vibhash Patel, who owns a quality inn on Savannah Highway, told me the effect of his wife's cooking is almost subconscious. Guests sometimes ask him to recommend a nearby Indian restaurant. Still, not everyone is appreciative. Vimal Patel says a small percentage of guests are liable to complain. They'll go online and put some comments. I was passing by and I saw, so I smelled some uh, Eastern Asian food. Is this is all they do here or this is a hotel? Things like that. So, you know, I have to be a little careful not to offend the, my guest because they are the one paying my bills. Indian food has a strong aroma, hands down. That's Pavan Dingra, who wrote the book about Indian motel owners. He says they've figured out clever ways of dealing with this. What families do is they will cook at off times. So instead of cooking a warm lunch for yourself at noon and eating it, and the smell being in the motel for another hour or so afterwards when people are checking in, you'll cook in the morning. When no one's really checking in, people are just checking out, and the smell hopefully has dissipated by the time people are coming in and kind of evaluating the place. Pavan says they'll also make improvements to the hotel infrastructure. 
in hopes of keeping the food scents from spreading. People will try to hook up exhaust systems to get the, the odors out of the main lobby. People will, if they can, if they're kind of redecorating their apartments or rebuilding them, put the kitchens as far away from the check-in desk as they can. Investing in ventilation systems becomes a top priority for a lot of families. And to their credit, they're not saying we're just going to cook food that we don't like, but that doesn't carry the same sense, right? We're going to cook what we want. We're going to believe in what we want, but we're trying to do so in a way that keeps it quite private. Here's how that works at the Days Inn that Vimal Patel owns. The building is L-shaped with the lobby at one end. At the opposite end, there's a first floor room with a leaky ceiling. Since Vimal couldn't rent it out, he turned it into a kitchen. I asked Jaquel, who works at the hotel, whether she knew what Vimal cooks in there. Jaquel grew up in North Charleston. Her favorite food is her grandmother's okra soup. Even though Jaquel is at the hotel all the time, she didn't know Vimal kept a kitchen. I have no idea what's back there. <laughs> I have no clue at whatsoever what he has going on. I asked her what she thinks the family eats. I mean, I've heard his wife say in passing he eats the same thing that I do, you know, just pizza and beer from time to time. Or she'll just be like, well, what is it that I need to fix for my husband tonight? You know, just simple little things that you hear normal couples talk about. But as far as really knowing what it is that they eat or, or understanding their cuisine, I have no idea. I had no idea. I would love to try it then. I really will. Is it just like Hindu? It's worth taking a closer look at Gujarati food, since it's not what most Americans imagine when they think of Indian cooking. That's because almost every Indian restaurant in the U.S. serves Punjabi food. Think of the lamb korma or butter chicken you might encounter at a lunch buffet. A Gujarati meal is more likely to consist of okra, greens, and a soupy bowl of sugared beans, accompanied by flatbread, sweet pickles, spicy pickles, and homemade yogurt. Let's talk about the geography of the two states really quickly. I mean, Punjab is in the north. And as Vishwash Bhatt knows, Gujarat is on the western coast. If you think of India like a diamond, Gujarat state is the leftmost point. Vish is another immigrant from Gujarat state who's in the hospitality business. But he doesn't have anything to do with hotels. Vish is the chef of Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi. Vish says Punjab reflects the culinary influences of Central Asia. Also, Punjab, because it's in the north, the rivers that flow out of the Himalayas are still full in the summertime. Right? So there's a, there's a constant water source, which means there's more greens and grains available year-round, as opposed to parts of Gujarat where the rivers run dry in the summer and you have to wait for the monsoon. So then the summer, in the summer you're using things like you know dry grains and pulses and pickle stuff just because there isn't that source of river water. Geography helps explain why Gujarati food is different from the Indian food most of us imagine. But so does culture. The cuisine is mostly vegetarian because it's heavily influenced by uh, Hinduism and Jainism. And so there's, while in Punjab you have a lot of you know rich butter and cream and meat and you know thicker breads, Gujarat is a little more, the food has more of a element of dry pulses, you know, mung beans or black-eyed peas or peanuts, etc., with whatever seasonal vegetables that can be thrown in. Many Gujarati hotel owners make a point of cooking exactly the way they did in Gujarat. Because they are near their kitchens all day, they can make the pepper sauces and halva and dosas that many Gujaratis who work as doctors or engineers, whether here or in India, 
just by on the way home. So they end up preserving important and old-fashioned aspects of a cuisine that's respected throughout Asia. All over India, when you say Gujarati food, then it's the, it's the best food. Jay Patel says there's a reason for this. Well, I, I think it's bland because it, it, the state of Gujarat is very strict vegetarian. And they grow their own products. You know, it's a big farming state. So every house in the village, they'll grow their own peppers and ginger and garlic and dry and powder and everything right there. So you know you're getting the top quality. It's organic. <laughs> Jay Patel's pride in his Gujarati heritage is shared by his fellow motel owners. Even though it's hard for owners to get away from their motels, they'll see each other at religious and cultural events, organized partly so the immigrants' children will be as proud of their home state as they are. We have a small Indian community here. Uh, I mean, not small, uh, very small, but compared to Charlotte and uh, Atlanta, it's a small community, but there's a one event, it's called Navratri. 10 days we get together, we pray and dance, and they hold a picnic in a different places, different park, and then kite festival this year they had uh, at the Folly Beach. A single southern city may only have a dozen or so Indian immigrant motel owners, but all of those small communities add up to what's become a significant political force. So what's ironic is that while the public may not be very much aware of this, these owners, because there's so many of them, and they've been doing this for so long, have accrued enough economic and political power that they're able to host conventions every year just for fellow Indian American owners. In the course of researching his book, Pavan attended an annual convention hosted by the Asian American Hotel Owners Association. The vast majority of the group's 10,000 members are Indian American. There are vendors of all types trying to get their business, praising them for their hard work, and most noteworthy of all, they have keynote speakers who range from Bill Clinton, Al Gore, George W. Bush. It is phenomenal. In 2012, the organization held its convention in Atlanta, where it's headquartered. This promo gives you some idea of what went down. We are here to be more successful hoteliers and to be a stronger organization. So let's get started. I have worked proudly and spoken out loudly for our members, our industry, and our heritage. The Professional Association of Motel Owners is one of the largest Indian associations in the country. And so it yields dramatic symbolism in terms of what it means to be Indian. A tangible example of this is the recent visit to the U.S. by Prime Minister Modi from India. And he was welcomed as a rock star. And a lot of the Gujarati motel owners were behind that support. Of course, the association isn't only involved in international politics. When second-generation Indian Americans Nikki Haley, who's governor of South Carolina, and former Louisiana governor Bobby Jindal were running for office, they looked to motel owners for support. If you want to enjoy first-rate Gujarati food, I encourage you to crash one of these conventions. Three meals a day are served, plus tea. Everything is both in Gujarati form and in American form. 
and it only takes you about one meal to realize that the Gujarati food tastes much better. Everything about the association is big. But far away from convention center ballrooms, it's possible to find Indian immigrant motel owners subtly shifting the course of Southern culture over plates of Gujarati food. Let's go back to Vimal's kitchen, which he refers to as a hangout. To be clear, Vimal isn't a traditionalist. He eats meat, he's tried making quesadillas, Sometimes the guy who's willing to let a reporter into his kitchen isn't the guy who's doing things the way they've always been done. Yes, I have got a big green egg. For the uninitiated, a big green egg is a Komodo-style clay grill manufactured by a company in Atlanta. When I came to Charleston, I started with a small $19 metal grill. Slowly, 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 when I got my hands on my you know, cooking, then I got big green egg, and I just love that big green egg. Vamal uses the big green egg for kebabs, seasoned with spices he buys in Charlotte. Well, right on my left, this is my refrigerator, microwave, grill. I mean, When you open the drawers in Vamal's kitchen, they're stacked three deep and four high with boxes of Shawnee brand kebab mix. Next is a big green egg and stack of a chair for people who come, and a big shelf to store all my tools for the cooking. Atop the counter, there's a long line of beverage options. Yeah, there's always a stock of uh, good scotch, uh, black label. Especially black label is always there because my dad loves it, so it's always there. He serves the kebabs on styrofoam plates with yogurt sauce, tinted with turmeric and sugar, soft biryani rice, and chopped up red onions. Uh, my kitchen is right at the end of the hotel, so where there is a minimum traffic of guests and any visitors, so, you know, it doesn't bother mostly anybody, but if somebody passes by sometimes, 97% of uh, guests would say, well, can I try some? That even extends to his staff. Yeah, I have uh, my employees also. They never tried uh, spicy Indian food, so, you know, I made them taste it and first uh, time you know it was a little spicy but then every other week they will say Vimal when you're cooking so you know I cook for them also. Vimal's cooking is so good that the owner of Taste of India Deepak Rathor hears about it. Taste of India is a northern Indian restaurant in Charleston where motel owners sometimes get together. Vimal always wants Deepak to come for dinner but even when he can't make it there's usually a small crowd. Normally, whenever I cook, I always have two, three, four friends, and sometimes, you know, those friends know that he will be cooking, so even I I have forgotten to invite them, they'll just pop in, which is, you know, most welcome for them. There are a couple of retired police officers from North Charleston, and uh, there is a lady, she worked at the Home Depot, and a couple of my other Indian friends, so we have a mixed crowd of, you know, different color. It's not only one brown, brown, brown. We have brown, black, white, yellow, everybody. At first, Vimal set up his kitchen because he didn't want food aromas to seep into the public areas of his hotel. Shortly, probably end of this uh, year, I'll be moving out to a house. Now, the house he's buying has a kitchen, so he doesn't have to worry. He can cook at home, miles from where his guests stay. But he's decided against shutting down his space at the hotel. Probably I will miss it, but I'm still going to continue that my kitchen. So when I have, you know, company instead of at the house, I'll entertain them here. So I will still be uh, on the property. So if you're ever staying at the Days Inn, 
and pick up the faint aroma of curry wafting from the back of the building, you may want to drop by the very last room in the hotel. There's no number on the door, but Vimal will probably be there cooking. Hannah Raskin is the food editor at The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, which partnered with us on producing this piece. We've got photos of the motel owners and more on our website, southernfoodways.org gravy. Thanks to Molly McDonald, Al Letson, Bob Weiss, and Melissa Bouton for being the voices of those Yelpers. Music for this episode was by Shamir Chatterjee, Sumitra Lahiri, Shalendra Misra, Ustad Abdul Karim Khan, Narinjan Pandya, and it included some Gujarati folk songs, courtesy of gujarativideos.in. There was a little Blue Dot Sessions in there, too. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Gravy's managing editor is Sarah Camp Milam, and our intern is Dana Bialik. Just ahead, a taste of an upcoming episode of Gravy, but first... This June, the Southern Foodways Alliance is headed to Nashville. We'll explore how the music city got its name. We'll learn about new immigrant populations in the area and taste how their food traditions influence the city's cuisine. There will be smart talks about everything from civil rights to cornbread. We'll debut new oral histories from Nolansville Pike and we'll screen SFA films at the Parthenon. Tickets go on sale to SFA members in early April. If you're interested in attending the Nashville Summer Symposium, but you aren't a current SFA member, you can take care of that by visiting southernfoodways.org and joining online. Coming up on Gravy, the things Jell-O can tell us about Appalachia. For this woman, her whole cooking history, I guess, was before Jell-O and after Jell-O. That's coming up. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs> <laughs>